All right, great to have you with us today, all of you, and we are going to uh, take a look at uh, some passages of Scripture today dealing with fathers and fatherhood. Next week we'll be beginning a new series of messages on a different book in the New Testament, but today I wanted to share with you some thoughts uh, regarding fathers and fatherhood. I thank God for the privilege of being a father. It's an awesome responsibility. It's also a great privilege. The children, or the scripture calls children a heritage from the Lord and a reward. I know some days of the week it may not feel like children are a reward, but that's what the Bible calls them in Psalm 126, as they are a heritage from the Lord and a reward. It's, it's a blessed opportunity by the grace of God uh, to rear children and to see them grow into young adults who love and serve the Lord. I have a faithful wife who loves the Lord. I have three terrific kids who know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and are striving to fear the Lord and serve Him. Uh, we have a great time of family fellowship together. I've enjoyed all the stages of life with my kids. I still enjoy them, enjoy the grandparenting issues. I've got a couple of son-in-laws that I like, and so that's great. Uh, I'm, I am a blessed man, and I thank God for the grace that He has extended to me. I have to tell you one funny story from many, many years ago when the kids were uh, they were all still at home. The girls were in college, and we were having a, a meal around the holiday times. And I said to the kids, I said, you know, I said, I have just enjoyed all of you, all of your life. I've enjoyed all the different stages of life and uh, enjoyed you as teenagers. I've just enjoyed uh, your, you've just been great kids. And one of my daughters, I won't say which one, looked at me and said, well, yeah, Dad, we wanted to live. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, fear is a great motivator, whatever it takes. So, <laughs> uh, But they, they were wonderful, and I, I am certainly a blessed man, and I thank God for the grace that He has extended to me. Uh, you know, children can have a great impact uh, on, on a man if he has the spiritual character to allow God to use them in his life. Because our children show us who we are. Uh, they, they highlight our values, for better or worse. And if we have a God-centered focus, our, our children will make us more responsible and more unselfish and more sacrificial. If we have a God-centered focus, our children will make us better men. And I, I, I have read to you over the years this quote uh, around Father's Day. I'm going to read it to you again this year. You may remember it. It's, just, it's simply this. There are only two lasting gifts that we can hope to give our children. One is roots and the other is wings. Let me read it again to you. There are only two lasting gifts we can hope to give our children. One is roots. The other is wings. All of the gifts and the things we may give them come and go, rise and fall, whatever, but, but the only two lasting things we can really give them is roots and wings. And by roots we mean values, uh, a moral compass, our character, our integrity, our ethics, the, those things that give us stability and consistency in a sin-cursed world. That is our roots. And then wings, are, are that's our, our, our education, our training, 
our spiritual discipling, those, those things that give us opportunity and they enable us to succeed in those opportunities. Uh, those are our wings. And it, it is our privilege as, as fathers, as men, by the grace of God to, to work to give our kids godly roots and Christ-honoring wings. Unfortunately, there are many men in our society who have turned their backs on their children in, in, in one way or another. Uh, do you realize that 40% of the children in this country do not have a stable father image in their lives? Family researchers estimate that 85% of the school children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways and homeless kids, 71% of those who drop out of high school, 75% of teenage patients in chemical abuse treatment centers, 63% of teens who commit suicide, 70% of teens in juvenile homes, 85% of teens in, in detention centers, 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. So you men here today never, never, never underestimate your influence. And pray for all of the young people that you know that God will bring into their lives a father image, a father fill-in, if you will. Because if you've got 40% of the children in this country without a stable father image in their lives, what a tremendous mission field that is. What a tremendous opportunity that is to try to influence young people for the cause of Christ. You can be a father image. You can be a father fill-in some, somehow. Perhaps God, God would use us in the lives of some young people. Well, I want you to turn first of all, I've got three different passages we're going to look at today. I want you to turn first of all today to Psalm 128. Psalm 128 for the first of the three scriptures that we'll use. And, and uh, it gives us, Psalm 128 gives us an interesting word picture of the parent-child relationship, particularly the father-child relationship, Psalm 128. A very short, uh, a very short psalm, only six verses. <clears throat> it is called, this section of psalms is called the final hallel. Uh, the word hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. It means praise. Uh, in fact, you are familiar with the word hallelujah. Uh, hallel is the first part in that. Actually, hallelujah is three Hebrew words. Hallel, lu, and yah. Uh, Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh, uh, the uh, the covenant name of the Lord. Uh, so a hallelujah is praise the Lord in in English. Uh, we, that's a that's a that's a Hebrew word. So the word hallel is the word praise, and there are there's a three different hallels as they're called in the Book of Psalms. The first one is called the Egyptian Hallel, and it's Psalm 113 to 118. It's called that because they always sing those psalms the Jewish people did at the Passover, and uh, as they were being delivered out of Egypt. So those psalms 113 to 118 are called the Egyptian Hallel. Then you've got the Great Hallel, which starts in Psalm 120, goes to Psalm 134, those, those verses. And if you will look at, you know you've got your Bible there, Psalm 128. 
if you see, uh, there's a subscript there that says a song of ascents. And what that is, is that that was a song that the Jewish people would sing as they were traveling to Jerusalem uh, for the feast days, the three feast days, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the early summer, our month of June, early June, tabernacles in the, in the autumn. And those families would, would all congregate in Jerusalem, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them. And as they would travel from all over the land of Israel, traveling up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, by the way, is about 2,700 feet elevation, one of the highest places in Israel. And so when people travel to Jerusalem, they always would say, we are going up to Jerusalem. Didn't matter if they were coming from the north, south, east, or west, you always went up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem. So the song of ascents were the songs they sang as they were going up to Jerusalem for those feast days, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And you will see in every one of these psalms, from Psalm 120 up to Psalm 134, you'll see that little subscript there, a song of ascents. And I can always imagine in my mind's eye, in fact, I've always wished that the Holy Spirit of God uh, would have chosen to preserve for us the music that they sang this to. It would be wonderful to see and hear. But you can imagine in your mind's eye hundreds and possibly thousands of Jewish people with their families traveling from all over Israel, taking these roads, going up and up and up for, for, to, to the city of Jerusalem for these feast days, traveling along singing these psalms together as families and as family groups. And if you were in Jerusalem, you could probably hear as the people began to get close, you would hear the voices of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming to Jerusalem, singing these songs of ascents as they, as they traveled the hills and came into the high country, which is where Jerusalem is these days. It always has been. So think about that in your mind as we look at Psalm 128. <clears throat> the song of ascent, and just picture in your mind, 300 Jewish people, families, all been, <clears throat> been camping and traveling, hiking up these roads, heading toward Jerusalem as they sing this psalm. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. In those first four verses, we have this wonderful word picture of the father or parent-child relationship. Notice he says in verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Who walks in His ways is the explanation of what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is not somebody saying, Oh, I've got great respect for God. I think I've preached to you long enough to, to, for you to know that if you say you have respect for God, it means that you're doing what He says. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And throughout the Old Testament, the person who fears the Lord is the one who walks in his ways. And so if the person fears the Lord, and that equals walking in his ways, then, then what are the blessings that come to him? There are several of them. He says you'll have a provision, that you're going to eat the labor of your hands, you're going to eat the fruit of your labor. 
You're going to have provision. You're going to have a happy home. You're going to have a peaceful home. You're going to have a productive wife. You're going to have children like olive plants around, around your table. Now, we do not live in a culture or in a part of the world where olives are grown, so we kind of miss the full power of that word picture. I never really saw an olive tree until a few years ago when Carol's sister, her oldest sister, gave us the opportunity to, uh, to go to Spain to see one of the other sisters. And some of you who have known us for a long time remember when we took that trip several years ago. And uh, as we drove through the countryside there in southern Spain, we just saw miles and miles and miles and miles of olive groves. And I stopped and took a picture of a big, huge, beautiful, mature olive tree. Uh, and uh, the first time I'd ever really seen these rows, I've seen orange groves a lot growing up in Florida, but I'd never seen a grove of olive trees. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are some interesting parallels to olive plants and to children. And they are simply this. Olive trees are slow growing. They have a very long life, but they are slow growing. And they can take up to seven years to begin producing fruit. And they can take 15 to 20 years before they reach full fruitfulness. Secondly, olive trees are very labor intensive. The soil around the base has to be worked regularly. Careful pruning, other chores are necessary to produce a good tree. Now, thirdly, they grow best in a particular climate. Olive trees like it warm and sunny. Uh, they do very well in dry, rocky soil if they're managed properly. And they tend to like to be near the sea. They like to be not necessarily on the ocean, but near where there must be a little bit of salt in the air or something. But uh, they, they tend to, they like warm, dry, sunny places. They like to be near the ocean. In, in ancient cultures of the Bible, the olive tree was, was very highly valued. He was called the king of trees. It has beautifully grained wood. Uh, good olive groves in a country were a sign of peace. Maybe that's where we get the olive branch symbol of, of, of peace came from that. It, it, it took years to grow olive trees. And, and if an enemy came into the land in, in war, that's the first thing they did was cut down the olive trees. Because if the olive crop failed, it was considered a national tragedy. If you had no olive oil, it wasn't so much for the tree or the wood or the olives themselves, it was the olive oil. Uh, they, they used it for cooking, they used it in medicine, they used it in cosmetics, they used it in religious ceremonies, they used it in oil lamps that didn't have wax and candles and so forth. They would burn in small lamps uh, olive oil. And so if there was no olive oil, no olive oil crop that year, it was a national tragedy. And so when you put all of that together... And liken that when he says your children will be like olive plants all around your table. We can, we can infer from that word picture that children, to the psalmist here, children are valuable. Children are beautiful. Children are labor intensive. Children like a, a warm, sunny environment. And they should certainly be considered a worthy investment of time for the purpose of producing fruit for generations to come. He says, your children will be like individual olive plants around your table. They are individuals. They are connected to you. They are, but they are individuals and we are responsible for them. They are around our table, that picture of family fellowship. 
Then I want you to look, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6. Just again, a short passage, the first four verses. The Apostle Paul gives three, three jobs for dads. Ephesians 6, we'll just read the first four verses. We're just going to focus on verse 4, but let's read the first four verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Roman fathers, the Apostle Paul's day, were quite authoritarian. And by law and in their culture, in their entire culture, they were, they were kind of the dictator of the home. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing that issue uh, when he speaks to Christian fathers here in the church in Ephesus, a, a very well-known Roman city. And he says, fathers, I want you to do three things. Number one, he says, do not provoke your children to wrath. Secondly, he says, bring them up in the, in the training and admonition of the Lord. So provoke not, train and admonish. Those three, those three commands there. To provoke not means to don't push your children to rebellion. Don't push them toward wrath. Don't provoke them to become angry, wrathful people. Don't push them to rebel. Uh, I'm sure, and there are many, many Roman homes, because of the authoritarian nature of the dads, there were many young people who had uh, very negative relationships with their fathers, just like is true today. You know, I know as I'm uh, teaching through this and preaching through these passages, I don't know what's going through everyone's mind, but I, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I understand that there are all kinds of issues with fatherhood in our society. Okay, I get it. I'm not pretending that that's not there. Many of you sitting here today had some challenging issues with your fathers. Uh, maybe you've had some challenging issues, you ladies, with your husbands. Uh, maybe some of you have had some difficult issues with a grandfather or grandparent. Uh, and, uh, and maybe you as a dad have had some difficulties with your own kids. Okay, I get all that. I understand that. We're all sinners. We live in a sin-cursed world. And there are many times that we blow it. Okay, but what the Apostle Paul is driving for here is he, is he is laying out a higher ideal than what the world has. He's saying to these Roman fathers here in Ephesus, don't be the typical Roman father. Don't do things the way the world does it. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Train them, admonish them in the Lord. So he says, first of all, don't provoke your children. As I say, that word simply means don't push them toward rebellion. And let me give you five ways that people can push their children toward rebellion. Uh, and this is a, this is just a, this is a short list. You could probably come up with 25 ways that you, people can push their kids to, toward rebellion. But the first one is this, under discipline. A lot of people just will not, a lot of dads will not deal with their children's issues. 
They will not deal with their children's faults. They will not try to address the things that they're doing wrong. And if a child has no discipline, then they have no guidelines. And if they have no guidelines, then they have no security. And they will, they will eventually uh, be pushed toward rebellion. Secondly, over-discipline, the opposite of that. Some, uh, some dads have so many rules that the child is constantly being rebuked and the child becomes discouraged and ultimately hateful and they basically end up saying uh, that I just, I just can't ever make my dad happy. I've heard that line before. I just can't make my dad happy. It's very, it's very frustrating. You have so many rules that the child's constantly being rebuked. There's no encouragement there, and the child becomes discouraged. Thirdly, inconsistent discipline. Nobody's perfectly consistent all the time, but we should work at it. If we are inconsistent, then we're going to leave our children confused and insecure and discouraged. And, and as I say, they're just going to say, no matter what I do, I just can't make my folks happy. I try this, I try that, I do this. I mean, I just, you know, they like, they like this one day, they don't like this the next day. Dad gets mad about this now, the next day it's okay. On and on it goes. They're just inconsistent up and down. And they finally throw up their hands and say, who cares? I can never make them happy. We are, we are pushing them toward rebellion. Number four, breaking your word to them. Now that could be a promise, that could be a threat. If you promise that you're going to do something, then do it. If you threaten that you're going to do something, do it. <laughs> so I remember hearing a story of a kid who was, came home, was telling his parents, we, I was over at my friend's house for a sleepover, and we were upstairs in his room, and we were talking, and, uh, and, and Dad yells from downstairs, You guys be quiet, go to sleep. And my friend was there saying, he's not serious yet, let's keep playing. And so they kept playing some more. Hey, hey, I said be quiet, go to sleep. He calls up the stairs. I said, he's, he's, he's not coming yet. And finally, about the fourth or fifth time, they, they hear footsteps. And the kid says, okay, now he's serious. You think kids don't have our number? Huh? I'm telling you, they do. My two and a half year old grandson can find your number real fast. They, they can figure out who's going who's gonna to do what when and, 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 and how far they can push the button. Okay? Don't break your word, whether it's a threat or whether it's a promise. Because once your children lose respect for what you say, you're pushing them toward rebellion. Number five, comparing them to other children. Why can't you act like other people? Why can't you do like that other kid? Why can't you do this? Why aren't you like your brother? Why aren't you like your sister? Why aren't you this or that or the other? Oh, very, very, very challenging. That's, that's, that's not the way to discipline, and comparing them to other children is not, is not a good thing. I, I still remember, and this is crazy, this is 50 years ago, a ninth grade algebra class. My sister, who was two years older than me, was fabulous in algebra. I was horrible in algebra. In fact, it hadn't been for her, I'd have probably flunked. And I remember the teacher coming in. I can still hear her voice 50 years later. Why can't you be like your sister? She was so good in my class. 
I wanted to kind of kick her in the knee and say, I don't really care what my sister did. <laughs> you never know what a ninth grader might do, huh? It's amazing how, how much the sting can be when you, we start comparing our children to other children in their presence and trying to use that as a tool for discipline. And you could go on and on. I say there's only five things. You could make a list of 25 things. Paul says to these Ephesian fathers, don't be the classic Roman father. Okay, I could say to fathers today, don't be the classic American father. Do not push your children toward rebellion. But the two positive things he says to do, he says nurture or train and admonish. Uh, to, to nurture means, means to train by, by correction or by discipline. To train by discipline. In other words, take action. Do something. When a child needs to be corrected, do something. Don't ignore it. That's what the training is. You're actually training by taking action. What you do with your children. And interesting, you know, the, the little phrase there, uh, bring them up. The phrase bring them up means to feed. So, so you are feeding them training. When I was a, a young man, when I was a teenager, I worked in a citrus nursery. Uh, there was a citrus farmer lived right down the road from us, and, and he had, uh, I don't know how many acres, but a bunch of, bunch of hundreds and hundreds of acres of orange groves. And, uh, and he also had a little citrus nursery, and I worked for him a couple of summers in the citrus nursery. Just so all you young kids realize how old I am. The minimum wage for agricultural workers in that day was $1.25 an hour. So you worked all day for eight hours and got ten bucks. Of course, gas was only 20 cents a gallon back then, so it went a little farther. You could buy a Coca-Cola in the machine for a nickel, so a 16-ounce bottle of Coke for, you know, I mean, sorry, 10 cents, and then you got two cents back when you took the bottle back, so yeah, the 10 bucks went a little further. But I worked for him in the citrus nursery, trimming the sucker branches, as he called them. The little tiny branches coming out from the bottom of the tree, and, and they, the leaf looked different, the, the stem looked different, and he said, make sure you break off all those little sucker branches. He said, that make the tree, not it, it won't grow right. And you got to keep going back every couple of weeks, you got to keep going back through the citrus nursery, breaking off all the little sucker branches. I've thought about that when it comes to child rearing. There are some things you're, you're thinking in your mind, I have told my kid this 500 times. Yeah, you know what? Keep breaking off the sucker branches. you got to do it every week or so. That's, that's training by taking action, by, by doing something about what those issues are. Then the, the, the second word there, admonish, means that you train by words, not just by action. You train by words. That a child should know why he's being disciplined. You, you, you correct, you explain by your words, you train by praising them as well. You encourage what is right, you correct what is wrong. And, and then those last three words of that sentence are so critical. Of the Lord. That's a crucial phrase because it, it, is, it is God's school and it is God's curriculum. It's not something that we decide to just make up what we think is right and wrong. 
He says, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So we're not going to be like the world. We're not going to be like the classic American dad. We're not going to be like the classic Roman father. We're going to be men of God who love God and serve God and are training and are admonishing our children so that they do the right things and go the right direction. Which brings us to our third passage of Scripture, and that's in Matthew and chapter 3. Matthew and chapter 3. This is the story of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, down at the end of the chapter. Verse 13 says, Jesus came from Galilee to John, this is John the Baptist, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? You say, what's all that about? John was baptizing what was called the baptism of repentance. If you were preparing your life for the coming kingdom of God, you would, John would baptize you. You were saying outwardly, I am repenting and purifying my life. So Jesus comes to John. John knows who Jesus is. He's his cousin. He's also seen him around growing up. He knows what's going on. And he comes to Jesus. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows Jesus has lived a perfect life already. He knows his testimony. He knows his reputation. And and Jesus comes to John to be baptized for repentance. And John says, what? You're coming to me to be baptized? You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus entered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he's saying, I am going to do this as an outward sign of my coming kingdom, even though I am sinless and I don't need it. As far as repentance goes, I have nothing to repent of. And so John allowed him. But then look at verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Wow. Think about that a moment. You've got God the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. You've got God the Son there who just been baptized And you've got the voice of God the Father booming from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know what I see in that little phrase, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I see affection and I see approval. This is my beloved Son, affection, in whom I am well pleased, approval. What is it that our children need from us, fellas? Affection and approval. Tell them that you love them and that you're proud of them. Challenge them, but encourage them. Correct them, definitely, but love them. Our young people desperately need affection and approval from their fathers. And there are massive numbers of adults who have never experienced that, as well as massive numbers of children who have never sensed affection and approval 
from their fathers. If they don't get it, they'll go hunting for it somewhere else. Fathering a child is, is work. And I don't mean the act of fathering a child. I mean bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the training and admonition of the Lord. Fathering is hard work. It takes a commitment of time and energy. It takes, it takes that training by action and training by words. It takes a concerted effort to not push your children to rebellion. It takes a, it takes a practiced effort to give your children affection and approval. You know, I have never, never heard a man say in his old age on his deathbed, I wish I'd worked more. I wish I'd spent more time making money. But I've heard thousands of them say, or I've read of thousands who have said, I wish I had spent more time with my family. I wish I'd done more with my kids. You know, it all has to start somewhere. As I said to you a moment ago, I understand our society today. I understand all the ups and downs. I understand all the broken families and all the dysfunction of of so many things in our society. I get it. I've been in the ministry for over 40 years now. I haven't been living in a cave all this time. I I, I know what society is like. And I'm not saying that, uh, that, that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pretending that all of you have had perfect upbringings and perfect family circumstances. I'm saying this is the ideal that God has laid out. This is what God has said we should be. This is what God has said we should be laboring to, to, to live up to. And, and all of these things, the affection, the approval, the admonishing on all of these things, it all has to start somewhere. It has to start in somebody's home. It has to start in somebody's family. It has to start in somebody's life. And if your kids are grown, start with your grandkids. Find a niece. Find a nephew. Find a younger cousin. Do, do, do something in their life. Model Christ and godly character in front of them. Be a testimony to them. Encourage them. Love them. Challenge them. Disciple them. It all has to start somewhere. So by the grace of God, let it start with you. Let's pray. Lord, you know we live in a mixed up, topsy-turvy world where your your plans and your ways are just uh, turned inside out and upside down and ignored. And uh, Lord, we, we, we recognize that. And I know, Lord, every single person in this room today has some baggage from their past, maybe has some baggage they're carrying with them right now. You know all that. I know all that. We're not blind to all of the ills of our society. But Lord, I pray that you would help us as men, we men who are here today, to be fathers like God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Lord, may the children that we know, our own children, our own grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our younger cousins, our 
young adult friends, may they recognize our affection and our approval. Lord, help us to admonish them, help us to speak the truth and correct when necessary. But may we also, Lord, encourage and love and strengthen and help to build disciples. This Father's Day, Lord, may you'd, I pray that you'd bless each one of these men here today. Help us to be a father image to everyone that we're able to do so for. And Lord, most of all, help us to reflect who God really is as our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.